0: You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, I want to start this morning talking about the problem of uh, what I would call false promises. And I wanna distinguish a false promise from a failed promise. A failed promise is one that simply wasn't delivered. So someone says they were going to do something for you and then they don't do it, that is a, a failed promise. A false promise is different than that. A false promise is one that never was capable of even delivering in the first place. And the reality is life is filled with false promises. I'll give you one example that Tammy and I were talking about the other day. If you're on social media, it's probably the main place that you would have seen this, but more and more celebrities seem to be starting skincare lines. It's like the thing to do. Every celebrity has one now. Now, I use one lotion for like my whole situation. So admittedly, I know nothing about any of this, but it does seem to that you have to order like enough potions that warrant an education at Hogwarts to be able to, use this all together. But here's the thing I would say about this. It is a brilliant business model. I very much think I understand why celebrities are doing this. These people are usually stunningly gorgeous. And so then they start to sell this product that says, if you will just buy this, then you can look like me. Now, I'm in no way insinuating that their intent is to deceive. I am saying that's a false promise. (laughs) Like, that's not going to happen. Their beauty is far more involved than some special expensive soap that they use to wash their faces. Behind these people's beauty is an entire team. There is a team of designers and makeup artists and hairstylists and trainers and nutritionists and personal chefs that all help them look the way they look. So the notion that some expensive skin serum is going to make me look like Harry Styles is a false Promise. Now I know you're wondering, Ryan, which one is you and which one is Harry? <laughs> Harry's on the right, just so you know. The, the not bald guy, adult male in a Baby Yoda shirt. That's Harry Styles. So please take that down so people are not distracted by my beauty. Um, life is filled with false promises. They're everywhere. And so as a result, I would argue that one of the most important skills that we have to learn to nurture in our lives is the ability to discern false promises. Because if we don't start to sniff those out, then we will spend our entire life in pursuit of things that are incapable of even delivering what they promise. And Ecclesiastes gives us insight into the despair that lies at the end of that road. And so as we come back to our study this morning, we are going to find one of the most common and most insidious false promises that calls to every single one of us. I'm talking about this false promise that says that there is something ahead, that if I can just attain it, all of my deepest longings will be met. There's something out there. There's some relationship. There is some job. There is some level of income. There is something out there that if I can just attain it, then all my deepest longings will be met. And the reality is that is the lure of idolatry. Now, when our modern ears hear the word idolatry, we are prone to picture people who are bowing down in worship to carved images out of stone or out of wood. But the reality is idolatry is often far more subversive than that. The late Tim Keller in his great, great book, Counterfeit Gods, if you haven't read that, small book, highly recommend it. He says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so this false promise that says there is something ahead, that if you can just attain it, it will satisfy all of your deepest longings. That is promising something that only God can give. And so here's what happens. Rather than learn to enjoy daily life with God, we end up driving ourselves to the point of despair, looking to the future for something it can't deliver. And so this morning, the teacher of Ecclesiastes shows us just that. So if you have a Bible or an app, I want you to open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 this morning. And I'm going to call this message Enjoy Daily Life. Now, This morning, we are going to cover 33 verses, which is the most that we're going to attempt at one time, so we're going to try really hard to stay above the fray for the sake of brevity, and in summary, the teacher is going to highlight four common pursuits that people look to for ultimate meaning, and he's going to show us how in his own experience, they all fall short, okay? And so we're going to start, he's going to start by highlighting the limitations of wisdom, So look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, and I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases." Now, if you know one thing about Solomon, my guess would be that it's that he was famed for his wisdom. Solomon is said to have been the wisest person who ever lived. And so the teacher here speaks as Solomon and says that despite amassing wisdom beyond anyone else's, he experienced the limit of it in two very specific ways. The first is this proverb that is in verse 15, where he says that even wisdom cannot straighten or fix what is broken in this world. Wisdom alone won't do that. So think about about a broken bone for a second. One of our friends, Megan, that we skate with, she broke her femur skating a couple of years ago, like just snapped it right in half. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible situation. And on the anniversary of her injury this year, she brought to the skate park this metal rod that they had to put into her leg in order for it to be fixed. And the amazing thing about modern medicine is that with time and multiple surgeries, what was once broken in her leg was eventually able to be repaired. And so the teacher here, is saying that wisdom is incapable of doing that with what is ultimately wrong in this world. It can't fix what is broken in this world. And the second limit that he highlights is that with increased wisdom often comes increased sorrow and grief. And I'll tell you just like one very practical, real way I've experienced this, Uh, for those of you that that know me we've ever had a conversation i've probably unpacked some of this at least with you but i spent a very large sum of my life avoiding feelings that i thought were uncomfortable to me especially sadness and the problem is we have to learn to be healthy adults we have to learn how to tend to all of our emotions that's a critical skill for us to learn in order to be whole And so with intense work, I've experienced immense growth in this area. And with it, an increase of wisdom as it comes to my own emotional health. But the irony is the increase of that wisdom has actually resulted in me feeling a lot more grief and sadness than I used to. So I'm healthier, but I'm also, it hasn't removed sorrow from my life. And so if anything, it's actually increased it. And that is the teacher's point here, that wisdom's ability to provide ultimate meaning, to take away all that is wrong in the world, is just limited at best. So next, notice how he moves from wisdom to pleasure. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So, in Ecclesiastes, it's important to understand, particularly here, that pleasure is in no way seen as a bad thing. And so the teacher says, I'm going to try this out. I am going to experience things that bring me pleasure, and I am going to see if that makes everything right in my world. And he references two of my favorite things, laughter and wine. Now notice, he is careful to say he doesn't get like blackout drunk on wine. He said his mind is still guiding him with wisdom. He simply allowed himself to experience things that bring pleasure. Yet in the end, it was still futile. Even pleasure didn't fill his life with ultimate meaning. Now, I would think that we can all agree that one of pleasure's obvious limitations is that it isn't sustainable. And by that I mean, you can't laugh all the time. You just can't can't do that. Things like food and wine, they start out pleasurable, but if taken to an extreme, if pushed beyond moderation, you end up in misery, And so pick your pleasure, and I promise you that it is not something that you can experience with any amount of constancy. And so pleasure's ability to provide ultimate meaning in life is ultimately limited at best. So next, he moves on to possessions. One, I think that if we're honest, all of us have some pull toward like, if I just had more stuff, I think I'd be more happy. So look at verse four. He says, I increased my achievements... I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds, and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles." This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So now the teacher expands his experience into almost every pursuit of which one can conceive. Notice over and over and over again, he says, I got this for myself. I built that for myself. I acquired anything and everything I could desire for myself. Now, by his own admission, all of it is painfully selfish. The number of times he mentions all these things that he does for himself. Painfully selfish. And by my observation, much of it is sinful. And at the end of all of it, he comes back to his favorite refrain. He says, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. So the teacher here echoes something that we all know to be true cognitively, but emotionally, we still really struggle to believe. And that is this, there is nothing that we could ever possess that will bring us ultimate meaning. And despite knowing that, we are all tempted to believe the false promise with which we started. Whether we verbalize it or not, we all believe that if some part of our experience were different, Like if we just possessed something different, then all of our problems would go away and our lives would be filled with more meaning. And despite having countless examples of people who, like Solomon, have had the means to acquire everything they could possibly imagine yet still find themselves miserable, we think, yeah, but if I had all that, it would be very, very different, which is just the epitome of foolish hubris that we believe, well, it's because there's something broken or dumb about those people. If I had all that money, if I had all that stuff, I would be happy as a pig in the mud. But how many examples do we have where that is not the case? Possessions, ability to provide ultimate meaning are limited at best. So now he's going to circle back to wisdom. Look at verse 12. He says, then I took to consider wisdom, madness, and folly for what will the king's successor be like? He will do what has already been done. And I realized that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly. Finally, a little bit of good news. Like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also knew that one fate comes to them both. Now, now we're back in line with his very Debbie Downer attitude. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Now here's what he's saying. It is objectively better to be wise than it is to be a fool. The life of a fool is filled with pain. Now remember, biblical wisdom is living in a way that results in our flourishing. And foolishness is its antithesis throughout the entirety of scripture. So where wisdom results in flourishing, foolishness results in a life that is filled with self-inflicted pain. So he says it's better to be wise than it is to be a fool, but both the wise and the foolish meet the same end. They both die. And so while wisdom does have some advantage over foolishness, it still doesn't solve that problem of death. And so as it pertains to eternal meaning, as it pertains to solving one of life's ultimate problems, it's, and in the end, is also futile. And so the teacher gives one more example in the limitation of work. Look at verse 18. He said, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. So this probably in our verses today, this is where things get most bleak for the teacher. He looks at all of his hard work. He looks at the wisdom and the diligence with which he has built his empire and realizes that at some point, all of it's going to be left to somebody else. Every single part of it. Then everything for which he worked so hard is going to be under the influence and the control of someone else. So, what is the point of allowing work to consume oneself to this degree? And I think this point is eerily timely for our culture. Do you know that Americans work on average 1,811 hours a year? That's more than Italy, it's more than the UK, it's more than Switzerland, France, Sweden, and Germany, and many others. For instance, if you do the math on this, Americans work on average seven more weeks a year than the average person in Sweden. Additionally, the United States has some of the worst mental health-related outcomes, including the highest suicide rate and the second highest drug-related death rate. Now obviously, that can't all be tied to overworking, but you just cannot argue that our long hours and our workaholic tendencies are resulting in a happy and a healthy culture. Work culture in our country is fundamentally broken. Work's ability to provide ultimate meaning is limited at best, regardless of how important the work is. So it is foolish to make it this ultimate thing in our lives now notice with me the teacher's conclusion as we come to verse 24 he says there is nothing better for a person than to eat drink and enjoy his work i have seen that even this is from god's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him for the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. So here's this point. Nothing that we know, nothing that we experience, nothing that we acquire or produce is ever going to bring us sustain, a sustained sense of of meaning. So, the best thing that we can do is learn to enjoy daily life. Now, on the one hand, that could be a little disappointing because we kind of have this tendency to live under the delusion that, again, there is something in the future that if we work hard enough or we're smart enough and we can get it, eh, all these problems are going to go away. And so, what we're learning in this is well, that's certainly not true. But there is an immense amount of freedom in this. Because it reminds us we can let go of that false promise that we have, because of the grace of God, we have in front of us all that we need to to find enjoyment in daily life. But here is the critical point that we can't miss. The ability to actually enjoy life comes to us from the hand of God. I would argue that verse 25 is by far the most important verse for us to sit with. He says, who can enjoy life apart from God? God alone gives life meaning. He is the source of our enjoyment. And so our big idea, and I think it's an important one, is this. The deeper that we engage with God, the more we can enjoy daily life. The deeper that we learn to engage with God relationally, the more we can actually enjoy daily life. I have certainly seen that to be true in my own life. And so when, what we learn here from the teacher is that the more that we pursue meaning as an end in and of itself, the more elusive it's going to be. Like trying to catch the wind, it will continue to slip through our fingers. Meaning and lasting enjoyment are a byproduct of intimacy with God. And so that means the first question is not how can I enjoy life more? The first question is how do I learn to go deeper with God? Even eating and drinking and enjoying our daily lives are from the hand of God. So the question is how do we go deeper with him? And so rather than prescribe some sort of one-size-fits-all answer to that question, before we close, I want to give you a few questions that you can sit with this week and try to discern a path forward for yourself in this? Three questions, okay? Here's the first one. Number one, what spiritual practices best position me to experience God's presence? If you don't know all spiritual discipline, all spiritual practice, prayer, reading scripture, worship, silence and solitude, there is nothing magical about any of those things. What those things are is Things that God has given us, tools that God has given us to put us in a position to experience relationship with Him. And so the question is what spiritual practices best position me to experience God's presence? We are all designed differently by God. That means we have different personalities, we all have different backgrounds and experience, we all like different foods, music, and entertainment. We all process information differently, yet despite all that diversity that we know exists in our lives, we're often conditioned to believe that we should all connect with God in the exact same way. And that's just a huge mistake. Yes, we should all pray, but you know, there are countless ways to pray. For instance, one of my favorite authors is a man named Richard Foster, and he wrote a book simply called Prayer. Uh, It's not a very creative title, but it is very clear, because that's exactly what it's about. It has 21 chapters in it, every chapter outlining a completely different way in which to pray. And based on the things that I've read about prayer, those 21, that's not even the totality of ways to pray and to talk to God. And so what that tells us is if you find the spiritual practice of prayer dry and boring, Which? Like, I know this doesn't sound like very pastorly. I don't think that's a word or, uh, but, but like lots of people find prayer dry and boring. That's one of the main reasons why people don't pray. But if you find prayer dry and boring, it doesn't mean that prayer as a practice does not resonate with you. It means you have not found the way to pray that God designed for you. And that is one of the great pursuits of our life is learning how do we best connect with God. And so spend time this week prayerfully contemplating how you connect most deeply with God and then figure out how to double down on those things. So first question, what spiritual practices best position me to experience God's presence? Here's number two. What are the current barriers keeping me from more depth with God? What are the current barriers in my life, in my circumstances, that are keeping me from more depth with God? It could be some intellectual question or doubt that has you hung up right now. It could be something emotional that you have not accessed yet. It could be a lack of time due to the current demands of your schedule. Oftentimes for us, what it really is is an issue of priority. More than anything else, we just prioritize so many other things over time with God. Now, my point in this is to say you cannot overcome a barrier that you don't see. So ask the Holy Spirit to show you any barrier that may be hindering your experience of God. Now, last question, number three, is this. What help do I need in all this? What help do I need in all this? What help do I need to learn how to position my life for depth in relationship with God? We live in a time where we are spoiled with spiritual resources. We have endless access to... Articles and books and seminars and retreats and podcasts and community and therapists and spiritual directors. There were thousands of years that followers of God didn't even have the Bible, and we have all of that at our fingertips. Now, the bad news of that is it can be very overwhelming, but the good news of it is we don't have to figure this out on our own. In fact, you can't figure this all out on your own. So the question is, what help do you need? And if you don't even know what kind of help you need, I want to invite you to do something super simple, okay? I want you literally to just type help into your prayer request today on the Church Center app when we close our time and fill out our info cards and prayer requests and all of that. If you're just like, I feel stunted and stuck in my relationship with God. I have this longing inside of me for more and I just, I don't know what to do. That is totally understandable. It is totally okay. Okay. And so if you don't even know where to stop, honestly, you you can email me if you want to provide more context, but if nothing else, just type help into your prayer request and I will follow up with you this week via email. And we will work together to chart a path forward and, and to find a way to help you, to help all of us be able to go deeper and deeper in relationship with God. We have to be, the longer that I walk with God myself, the longer that I pastor, the more I feel like we have got to be fiercely committed to relational depth with God. Otherwise, what is the point? If we're not after that, actually knowing him, being known by him, experiencing him, hearing his voice, feeling his presence with us, then what is the point? We have to be committed to relational depth with God, because the deeper we engage with him, the more we can actually enjoy daily life. And so let's figure out how to go deeper with God together. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you long for relationship with each of us. That's what you created us for, to know you, to be known by you, To be understood by you, to be loved by you, to be secure in you, to find our significance in you. All of it, Lord, is bound up in this relationship between you and us. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you made the great sacrifice of your own life to enable and open the door to that relationship. So we thank you for your grace and for your mercy that invites us deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship with you. And so Lord, we just ask you for the faith and the wisdom necessary to position our lives to experience you more. Lord, you know how overwhelming that can feel to us. You know, everything inside of us, everything in this world that pushes back against that longing inside of us for more of you. And you can overcome it all. And so we ask that you would. Lord, we thank you that we are not left to ourselves to figure all of this out. Your Holy Spirit is our helper. Holy Spirit, you are our guide. You are our comforter, our healer, and our friend. So, would you guide us into deeper and deeper relationship with you? And Lord, I just pray over anyone here right now that honestly is listening to this and just feels like, I just don't think I care right now <laughs> about relationship with God. Lord, I thank you that you love them. That you are with them right where they are. I thank you that you are never in a hurry with us. And Lord, I just ask that you would do whatever work is necessary in every one of our hearts. That we would have an insatiable longing for more of you. Would you open us to that? Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.